Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends of today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back, as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Mike. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Mike and KJ are friends who met through work. Mike has the same birthday as Bob Kelly from the Philadelphia Flyers, roughly 20 years apart, but was too embarrassed to bring it up when he met him. Mike also conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant, Where Anything Goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by Nick, which is me. We will be jumping into 1987's comedy drama, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, directed by John Hughes, also known for 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Other movies that would have been in theaters at the same time include The Running Man, Wall Street, Batteries Not Included, and Teen Wolf 2. That's T-O-O in case you have trouble finding it. I'll tell you a little bit about this movie and why I thought this would be uh, a fun one to discuss today. We're introduced to the main character, Neil Page, who is apparently a successful businessman in the field of marketing. And he's trying to get back to his family in Chicago from uh, an appointment in New York City. And he's having some difficulties along the way. And he comes across, he just seems to cross paths with this uh, other traveling salesman, Del Griffith, played by John Candy. The first one was Steve Martin. And some crazy traveling tales ensue. Unlike some of my other choices, I didn't have a, a long history with this movie. I know I've seen bits and pieces of it on TV throughout the years, but the real reason I, I brought this one to our attention was I like Steve Martin, I like John Candy, and I was trying to find something that would really hit the Thanksgiving theme as we enter the season. And this was pretty much the movie that was out there that said, hey, if you need a Thanksgiving movie, this is the, the one to go to. And I do remember as I watched it, seeing this movie before. And again, I don't think I've ever seen it in its full entirety. I did enjoy this movie. And the reason I like this, even though through the soundtrack, it is clearly an 80s movie. You can just feel it in your bones when you're listening and watching it. But the thing I liked about this movie was not only was it a comedy of that time, but I actually thought it was a comedy that also had an interesting story too. And we'll talk about that a little bit further when we get into the trivia and probably into the movie rant. But it wasn't just, hey, this is just silly, ridiculous, like many of the slapstick comedies some of us love and enjoy, but really have just come to expect in that uh, genre right now. So that's why I brought this one up. Tom, any initial thoughts? This is my first viewing of this movie. I'm not a huge um, a John Hughes fan. I find his stuff to be uh, kind of fun and occasionally, I wouldn't call it edgy, but uh, theatrical in a way that's really pleasant. However, he is often very sentimental. It's, it's, it's schmaltz, right? He, he drips some schmaltz on the, uh, on the sandwich uh, with his stuff. And, and it's often the 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 sentimentality is is often segmented from the rest of the movie in such a way um th- that it becomes sort of strange and and kind of manipulative uh one example i could think of from ferris bueller is when um cameron has his big 
uh, emotional scene while the car is ends up accidentally driving out of the house. Um, we see that in this movie when uh, Steve Martin has had enough of John Candy's character and he starts yelling at him and John Candy has this famous speech about, you know, uh, I'm the real article. People like me for me. My wife likes me. My customers. And, and the scene is undercut with this bizarre score. Um, and it's, it's just like completely the kind of emotional heartstring pulling aspects of it are just segmented in a, a film that otherwise has these kind of really lovely edges to it. Um, you know, like J John Candy driving the wrong way on the highway and he transforms into the devil, which is this like lovely moment. But it's, it's just hard for me to get through Hughes movies for that reason. How about you, KJ? What do you think? So I watched this movie while I was traveling for work, maybe five or six years ago. But before that, I hadn't seen it, but I felt like I had because it's it's in like a lot of movie montages. Like I, I definitely had seen the that that font of the title, the text coming across the screen real big. I, I know I've seen that. Um, but as I say, I, I watch it while traveling for work, um, which is kind of like watching Jaws at the shore, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I, I thought it was quite funny, but it is another one of those movies. I think you got to watch with a group of friends when you're sitting by yourself. It's, it's, it's still really good. I mean, come on, John Candy's amazing, but it, sitting by yourself in a hotel room, not the best way to experience, um, this movie. Then I watched it again for the show and it was a little strange. I felt like I was watching it for the first time. I couldn't remember the details. Like if you had asked me to go back and say, what, what, you know, where do they start? Do they start on a plane, a train? I, I couldn't tell you the progression through the plot. It, it felt more like vignettes that were really good, but I don't know if it's a cohesive, um, a cohesive experience uh, while you're viewing it, but I, but I really enjoyed it. How about you, Mike? So for me, this, what this movie is, is another Steve Martin. And I've always been just a huge Steve Martin fan. And back at that time, so when this movie came out, I was 12. So the, my brother is then nine years older than me. So he introduced me to a lot of Steve Martin. So like The Man with Two Brains and The Jerk and all these other ridiculous movies. And then, of course, The Three Amigos was like the year before this movie came out. And so I just remember this one flowing into that line of those, those Steve Martin comedies that came out that where he was just like hitting each one of them. So... I just, I know I've seen it a bunch in my life and I, and this is one of those movies that I, if my, if my memory serves me correctly, back when HBO was relatively new in the eighties, they only had so many movies to show and you could always find a couple different movies. That's why I've seen with the man with your brain so much. And that's why I've seen planes, trains and automobiles as much as I did. There was only so many things HBO could show. And if you wanted to watch a movie in your house, that was the only way to do it. But I always just enjoyed like John Candy and Steve Martin alone. Just I was I grew up in the generation that like just seeing Steve Martin on anything he's going to do. He's always going to be on Saturday Night Live. That's awesome. You know he's going to be in this. Uh, that's great. So I've always had an attachment to the movie like that way. It's not my favorite of his movies, but it's it's still one of my, it's still a, like a good Steve Martin movie. And and like you said, uh, like Tom said, the scene in the car, just the and the lines, the quotable lines that come out of that movie. I still use them with my family today. Like, especially when you're going the wrong way. Like, all the, how do they know where we're going is what I always <laughs> say when someone says you're going the wrong way. It's, it's, I just can't get out of it. And for me, it's also one of those movies, like, I've showed, I have, I've showed that to my daughters during the quarantine this summer. That was like one of those, hey, we should watch this. It's good enough for, they're, they're my age, they're the, they're the age they, that I was when I saw it. Yeah. So it's a good family movie. 
And uh, like I said, it's always got Steve Martin and I, and I can't go wrong with him. Nice. And, and that scene you were referring to with them driving on the wrong side of the road, they're like openly mocking them right, for telling yeah. them. He's doing the fake <laughs> like they're drunk. Yeah, that's great. Well, um, Mike, one of the critical elements to the whole show uh, that we ask every one of our guests is, what do you think would be the best snack to uh, enjoy, uh, to eat or imbibe while watching planes, trains, and automobiles? Oh, so for that one, I think you're going to go with your traveling foods. So your small bags of peanuts, you know, uh, and the Lorna Dune that you get on the airplane as well is probably a good. And then you have to have a drink out of a small plastic cup. You can't have the full 12 ounces of a drink, only six or seven. So that would probably be your best option for a movie that deals with so much traveling. What do you just line up all your bags of peanuts yes. at the beginning of the movie? Well, no, you, of... only get, you only get one. So oh, you only get one. Oh, jeez. Hey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Spread it out for them. John Candy actually had uh, peanuts when he was on the bus. So right. he did have them. So that's right on theme. It's time for Movie Quiz. In round one, there's going to be three questions. Each one is going to be worth one point. The categories are You'll Never Make the Six. Our tickets are only good to St. Louis, and I don't have a home. Mike, since you're our guest, please select the first category. I'll go with uh, you'll never make the six. It's time for question one. We're introduced to the successful marketer Neil Page early in the film. Neil has one goal, to be home in Chicago for Thanksgiving. Neil's trip out of New York City, however, definitely does not go as planned. What obstacles did Neil have to overcome just to get to the airport on time? We're going to keep going until we get to the last one. And Mike, I'm going to let you share with us the first obstacle on your mind. Well, the first obstacle would be being stuck in the meeting. That is correct. He's stuck in a meeting. He has to get out at a certain time. And this guy is really looking at which um, copy he would like to use for the cosmetic uh, advertisement and even at the end of the movie i don't know if you guys have made it through the credits he's still looking at those uh copy so those and copy. he does he does he like the, that boss also has the great uh where you're expecting him to say something <laughs> and then he just doesn't because <laughs> i've been we've all been in meetings that time. <laughs> uh tom the next one i'm gonna whew. let's see uh he trips over dell's luggage his trunk Yes. And I would imagine it'd be very challenging to travel around with that giant trunk when it was just him. Uh, but yes, he does trip over that chest trunk, whatever you want to call it. KJ. Uh, he has that race with Kevin Bacon. <laughs> of course. And I actually just wrote down Kevin Bacon. <laughs> so it's actually a pretty iconic race. It takes a while. And that's, by the way, when I said you really knew this was an 80s um, uh movie because that that soundtrack in the background i can't even explain it but i hear it in my head it's very 80s okay mike we're back to you i'm gonna go with uh paying the money to the random lawyer that was taking the cab from him. yes he's a thief no i'm an attorney so it's close hey he paid he had to pay him 75 dollars and still didn't get the cab <laughs> tom back to you i'm going to say john on Candy's character, Dell getting in the cab that he paid for. Yes, I kind of gave that away anyway. But yes, well, the cab was stolen. The cab if you was don't stolen. remember that, you probably haven't been paying attention <laughs> to the movie. <laughs> KJ, do you remember that? 
Yeah, yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, back to you, KJ. Um, this, this isn't on the way to the airport, but he wants a first class ticket but doesn't get first class. That doesn't count. Um, I think I'm out. I thought it was mostly that that cab, trying to get the cab. And then doesn't he run all the way to the airport? He, I no. believe he no. he does not run all the way to the airport, but it doesn't uh, no, but it doesn't give away anything either. Uh, eventually, we see him getting off a bus at the airport. Uh, we don't see him getting on the bus, but uh, we do see him getting off the bus. Mike, do you have anything else? Uh, the only other thing I would say is there's the with the cab he does eventually catch up to Dell, does the you know opens the door, does the reveal of seeing it's Dell in the car, and then the cab takes off and runs over his suitcase. That is exactly briefcase. what I had. Traffic ran over a briefcase. <laughs> I have one more. Oh, nice. okay. <laughs> well, I don't. So let's hear what you got. Oh. <laughs> it's it's a very it's a very brief delay. It doesn't delay him very long. Okay, let's see. Forget he forgets his gloves before he gets in the elevator. He does right. forget his gloves. It he doesn't does, del- it doesn't delay him. He does actually everyone. take a step back. Yeah, so I will so... Okay, so so in this one we're going to give just because of the cycle, uh, KJ did not complete the cycle and you and Mike did complete it. So I'm going to each give you a point. I'm going to give Mike and Tom a point there uh, for that one cuz that is that is technically a minor delay. Yeah. Thank um, God for backward steps. <laughs> If he didn't lean into it, Tom, probably no points. But mm-hmm. <laughs> so I I just wanted to bring this one up with the the whole premise and the the journey. And we don't have to stop at just, you know, his trip to the airport, but the fact that he keeps even at an early stage crossing paths with Tell. I mean, it's kind of crazy to me. Do you think that was a good setup or is there any thoughts about how the they set up the whole movie? Yeah, that first viewing Adele, when the window goes down, John Candy's face is hilarious. It's a great intro to 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 Ernest Dell, right? He 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 just he looks shocked, horrified. This man is like assaulting him through a window. Yeah, I thought that was a great introduction. Um also I was a little disappointed those gloves didn't make a comeback. I thought the gloves were gonna beat him home or something, or well, this one scene where he's in the back of the truck. And he goes to reach for a glove and the dog comes out. So there's the, the, you know. And the whole movie when they're traveling through random cold things and he's the only one like rubbing his hands together while Dell's got gloves on. Very true. What I always thought with, with, with all the times that he runs into him, it sets that character. Every time he meets Dell, he's in some, Dell is this deer in headlights looking guy. Whereas, and he's a ridiculously cynical person every single one of these meetings it's the same way like Dell's oh I can't drag my bag through the you know I can't drag my bag through that cornfield after the train breaks and so he shut he sighs and shakes his head and just goes over and helps the guy like so there's and he walks up to him he's in the seat next to him and Dell's all super happy and he's that just that grump so it, it like all of those meetings really drove home the personalities of those two guys and I, I'd say specifically in the opening sequence, because it's focused mostly on Neil, we see almost, I don't want to say Neil at his worst, but when he's really under stress, under pressure. And this is just the beginning. He didn't even really get to the point where he's really going to blow up. And he's looking for an outlet. And Dell becomes that outlet, whether he deserves it or not. And I'm sure we'll go into that in a little bit. 
but it's it's an interesting just to set the dynamic of of the two even though most of it is from neil's perspective at that point well it's also neil's frustrations are justified he is mistreated quite quite handedly throughout this um and and you know it he he doesn't blow up on um john candy's character dell as as frequently he's just trying to get away from him and and mostly he's trying to do that politely with with a few exceptions um but what we see in this beginning is kind of the problem of association which is something bad is happening to him justify it's justifiably bad he's not causing it but then he is he's kind of associating it with with john candy's character because of the luggage he trips over because of the cab um and none of this is really um what's his name? Del, none of this is Dell's fault, but it sets up that kind of association where we could see that, um, that Neil is, is being kind of, uh, taken advantage of by circumstance or by, by people such as the lawyer. And, uh, and Dell is there. Um, you know, Dell just happens to be there is really what, what set is set up in that opening sequence. Now at the same time, is Neil putting himself in this position, though? Because Neil knows it's very challenging to make the six and do all the things that he wants to do. So is, is he creating his own failures here? Well, what, what I would say yes and no. First of all, the, the, the boss holds him up. But secondly, why doesn't he take the 8 o'clock flight that's offered to him by his friend? Because he promises his wife will be home by 9. And he really is desperate to get home, not because... You know, he wants to sip scotch and, and uh, you know, uh, feel money or something like that. He wants to get home to see his daughter's recital, which he ends up missing. So there is this, th there is this kind of family values thing he's trying to get back to. And that's why he's not selecting the eight o'clock fight. In retrospect, you know, maybe he should have, but. Well, so, you know, that's, so I guess I agree, Tom. It is a noble cause, right, to get home for his daughter's uh, show. I, maybe not noble, but it's, <laughs> it's not, it's not like desperately self-involved. Right, it's not negative. But you had brought up the gloves. Even if, like, the, thinking about the gloves didn't slow him down because he was waiting for the elevator anyway. If he had not rushed to try to make the six and got on the eight, the flight would have been canceled. So that also wouldn't have gotten him out of the water. Yeah, so it's still not his fault. Right. Basically, yeah. yeah. But th at that point, he doesn't have that chance meeting with Dell and gets on the bump flight and all that stuff because you're overnight in New York City. Right. Mm -hmm. My thought actually was, as soon as he's rushing out and there's that long line, if there's a bus that goes there, why didn't he just get on the bus first? Because <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't yeah. like buses. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. He's like, if you didn't like the train, you're not going to like the bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was another great scene on that bus. <laughs> Okay, uh, well, I guess we'll, we'll move on to the next uh, question. And the two remaining categories are, our tickets are only good to St. Louis, and I don't have a home. KJ. I'll do our uh, tickets are only good to St. Louis. Um, yeah, St. Louisville there, I'll do that one. It's time for question two. Del Griffith is quite the traveling salesman. When stuck at the Trailways bus station, what are the pitches Dell of the American Light and Fixture Jewelry Division uses to raise cash so they can continue on to Chicago? We're going to do this one in the same way we did the first one, where we're going to start uh, with KJ saying one of the pitches, and we'll continue around the group. 
was I, so that was a great scene because it, it takes you a little bit of time to realize what he's doing like you're like wait jewelry that doesn't and then people start wearing the uh the shower rings as a, the whole setup is amazing, like that he sells these anyway um i believe one time he sells the earrings that madonna wears i believe the selling point is madonna wears these so you should too well, unfortunately, KJ, you're out pretty early. <laughs> In my head, it was Lady Gaga, and I'm like, I couldn't be Lady Gaga. Well, I, I will let the rest of the group know there were seven pitches, but Madonna <laughs> was, not, was, not was not one of them. Oh. So uh, I will then uh, move on to Mike. I'm going to go with the, uh, the helium-filled ones that were very light, so you don't even notice you're wearing them. Yes, they are very light, the helium-filled ones. They were clear. Yes, yes, that that is definitely one of them. Tom, do you have one of the pitches? Yes, they make you look older. Yes, that was the uh, last pitch, actually. The final pitch. Because yeah. he said to the group of three girls, you know, you look older, maybe 18 or 19. <laughs> I don't know how old these girls were supposed <laughs> to be. But uh, yes, looking older is definitely one of them. Mike, it's going right back to you. Yeah, and this is this is a bad one because that was going to be my second one. <laughs> There's, he sells one that's an autographed version. Some it's autographed by someone. I just I can't remember. It's who not it is. Michael Jackson. Right? It's somebody famous like Madonna, or it was an '80s person, wasn't it? I'm gonna give you a moment to collect your thoughts. Who <laughs> well, else? It wasn't Bruce Springsteen. It had to be somebody. No, it had to be a. a, a yeah, you wouldn't have a Bruce Springsteen earring, sideline, would you? <laughs> you could think I'm not a salesman. <laughs> Don't ask KJ what the pitch is. <laughs> I, I think I know it, and I also well, have another one. But... Uh, let's see what. Let's see if Mike can pull something uh, together. So it's 1987. So, and we know it's not Madonna. Thank you, KJ, for that one. <laughs> but. I'm just thinking of other random singers in the time that I feel like were that, like Paul Abdul, but I don't think that's right. Okay. Uh, nope. It, <sighs> it was not right. Uh, Tom, just keep keep going. Keep um, going. Well, I only have, so an ancient artifact. That's an, it's an ancient artifact I got. And I also believe it was uh, Marilyn Monroe, right, who signed it? Well, it's a good thing you said ancient artifact first. Yeah, I, because I wasn't sure. That's why I said that yeah. first. So it was... Um, Designed after the one for the, that was made for the Grand Wizard of China from the Fourth Dynasty. Mm -hmm. uh, so I will count that as ancient artifact. The other ones were, and the reason I couldn't do autograph, there were two different earrings that were autographed. So I, I, I needed a little bit. I remember that, but I couldn't remember who the autograph. The first one was Diane Sawyer, you know, 60 <laughs> Minutes. 60 yeah. Minutes. <laughs> you know? And then the next one was made of Czechoslovakian ivory. <laughs> okay. Then there was the Walter Cronkite moon ring. <laughs> and I think the one, it wasn't, it wasn't a singer. Uh, it, we had a Daryl Strawberry autographed that's, earring. Yeah, that's right. Oh, right. Which, that's I thought, right. which I thought was actually kind of an interesting choice. I know it's relevant, but unless Dell's character originally was from the New York area. Like they're supposed to be like Chicago based. And I know Dell, we find out is traveling. He was uh, 
rookie of the year in 85 yeah so this movie would have been 86 yeah i just thought it was interesting that it was Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. he was a name in the news at the time yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so it was something that was uh and it was pre-drugs yes yeah actually (laughs) at this point well at least known to the public known (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if it was pre um but yeah, so I, I just thought this was a fun question really to open up the conversation to talk a, a little bit about Dell because just like we started to talk about, I actually think Dell is a little misunderstood at first in the audience. And what I loved about this is it shows you how personable this guy is. I mean, how he can just go up to anyone and, and, and start a conversation and convince them that something – and again, I actually don't like this because it puts a bad spin on salesmen that they'll just lie to you to take your money. But it also, in, in the concept of this movie, was really interesting to see how personable he was and how people were inclined to trust him and like him. So I, any, anything about Dell, I thought this was a perfect yeah. opportunity. And I think like that, there's lying to him, but then there's also just the, like, Ed the make, making the deals. He gets the hotel because he knows the guy and he did this and this guy owes him a favor. And, you have the great scene with Gus's son who comes to pick them up. And, uh, and his like, strong wife. Yeah, his strong <laughs> the ba- wife. The like. baby came out sideways <laughs> yeah. and she didn't even make him. <laughs> like they just, and the people he meets because he's got that personality of just like, you know, anybody he talks to, he wants to be friends with and is able to do that regardless. And, and it proves it at the end. He turned this like, you know, cold businessman into someone who's bringing him home for Thanksgiving dinner. But yeah, that like so that just that that it's it's a sales technique, but it's also just yeah, it's the character that you know you almost feel like a lovable loser. Yeah, and, he is uh, who he is. You know, yeah. like that's how, it, and that's and that's what's endearing about him. But I actually thought, just to your points there, Mike, he actually was making things happen, whereas um, Neil was just kind of complaining. <laughs> If you get through all the talking too much or whatever, he's actually the one who is contributing the most. <laughs> In my yeah, if you if you if every ride home except for the plane was arranged by Dell at some point. <laughs> I I love how he'd say it though. Like sometimes, like, okay, I get it, you're a traveling salesman selling shower, but like shower curtain or shower rings, but the train, he's like, Yeah, I sold them all their shower rings. I'm like, what kind of train is this? They got like overnight with like showers? Like, what's going on? It doesn't need to make sense. And and the rings. The the other thing that was that again, it took me a while to understand he was selling them as earrings. I, I don't have pierced ears, but any pierced ear that I've seen, I don't know that you could get at least the, the shower rings that I get from Target through that. How they're they're, they're like a clip on earring. It's yeah. just the contact. Yeah. There's enough contact there between the two pieces that you would normally so you know a, a shower curtain ring has like a, a ball and socket type joint. Yeah. So this is just basically you're putting your earlobe between the ball and sock without oh, pushing all the way through. Yeah. That makes I a thought lot of more that sense. too, or one, it's a comedy, so it didn't make it. Unless you're the people who have like the true like, gauges, like really those. That's what I'm like. You happened to find yeah. all these people yeah, in the was 80s no, that. Yeah, I mean, those there were people some, didn't exist in the 80s. Yeah, there may be some in in, in the punk rocker scene there, but like. Yeah. But yeah, I think the average person, if you tried to put that through, you would rip your ear. But yes. Got it. So they were more like clip-ons. That makes sense. Yeah. Or they didn't care and just it was outrageous. Yeah. Here's a, I just, a, a, this is a Pauline Kael quote about John Candy. Uh, she's talking about Splash, not this movie, but I think it holds. Um, she says, John Candy is perfectly named. He's a mountainous lollipop of a man and preposterously lovable. <laughs> which i think yeah especially that last you know she also said like he doesn't add weight he adds size 
Um, that's I like that. I like yeah. That. He yeah. Is, which he's good. Yeah, he is. He's he's incredibly. He isn't. Um, yeah, there is. There's a, a a respectable amount of earnestness to him, um, uh, but he isn't necessarily naive. And I think that's that's the line he walks here. Um, I, I think he uh, he's. I don't think he's ever necessarily taken advantage of, with the exception of the time he's robbed. In which case, it's you know, it's kind of hard. And in, in the same way that uh, Steve Martin sort of is, and his mantra that he gives for that is he just kind of goes with it. That's what he said. That's what he says after uh, the rental car situation doesn't work out for uh, um, Neil particularly well, right? Candy's able to get one because he just sort of goes with it. And so there's a, there isn't a a naivety here necessarily. But um, but a sort of need for for society that or you know for like for people to talk to, which we learn at the end of the movie is, is due to kind of a, a tragic circumstance that he's been in. Um, but at the same time, he's very good at assessing his circumstances. So when I was watching it this time, I also made the connection in my brain, and this is a movie we're going to be exploring. It's one of my picks, as you'll probably realize once I say it um, for the holidays. Is Home Alone. It's just a classic holiday movie. My wife and I watch it every year. And the reason I'm bringing it up is John Candy has almost a very similar character uh, in that one when the mother can't make her flight. They get a, a rental truck and they're, he's part of a polka, a polka band in this in, instance, but they're in the back of the truck trying to get back to their destination. And I had to look it up. And of course, I, I didn't make the connection at first. The writer of Home Alone is John Hughes. So I think he was making a direct homage to uh, this film uh, with that character. Yeah, John Hughes and Candy made, I think, five or six movies together. Because they also did Uncle Buck yes. and, and, and a few other ones. They were a team for, for a long time. Okay, we have one last question in round one, and it is, I don't have a home. It's time for question three. After the two traveling partners finally depart in Chicago, Neil begins to look forward to being reunited with his adoring family, but also reminisces about his time with Dell. What are the three memories that Neil recalls that directly leads to a surprising epiphany regarding Dell Griffith and his wife, Marie? Locked in with two. Me, I am two. I can go. I got two. I think I've locked in with three. I think I have them. You know what? I got three. I don't think they're all right, but I got three. <laughs> you know what, KJ? How about you start it off then? All right. So the two I'm more confident in, one is... He remembers Dell saying, I don't have a home. He also um, remembers. Wait, wait, you say that again. <laughs> he remembers Dell saying, I don't have a home. <laughs> I don't sure? think he says that. <laughs> I don't think he says that. <laughs> That's the big reveal. That's the epiphany. <laughs> no, early in the movie, he says, Oh no, I'm sorry. I haven't been home in eight years. I okay. have been home. You're confusing been home the reveal. <laughs> <laughs> with the memories. All right. I've been okay. home. Okay, somehow that's so far. What's that's next? That's one. One, if you'll give it to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he remembers Dell saying, my wife likes me. Is another one I'm pretty confident in. And, the, and the third one, I'm not very confident, but I kind of like the line. Um, Dell says, like your work, 
love your wife. Uh, I'm going with the, I haven't been home in years because that gets echoed multiple times. The, uh, oh shoot, you just said it, the same one, but the, so the, and then the second one is the, to the wives where they're drinking in the hotel room and they, they, they cheer each other and they would do cheers to the wives and again, Steve Martin tells me you always have someone to go home, you know, loving wife to go home to. And then the other one was, oh, the first, this, the second one KJ said, shoot. But it was, um, tell- the, the, <laughs> oh, I just had it. And it, it, this is bad memory. <laughs> oh, yes. When he, t- uh, no, no, no. I'm going to mute for a second. <laughs> no, I got that out of my system. Oh, where's KJ's cricket? <laughs> I just had it and it's totally gone. So they haven't been home in years. I said that one. And I said the, the when they're drinking. And I'm just going to think back to when he was looking at the picture of his wife. I know it's not it. Okay, picture wife. Okay, Tom. Uh, the first one was My Wife Likes Me from the hotel room. The second, yeah. The, <laughs> the second one is... Um, uh, the, when he says, I haven't been home in years at the cafe uh, or the diner. Uh, then the last one is to the wives. When you have a, a wife to come home to, that's the most important thing, uh, which is what yeah, they, they toast to in the, the hotel. Yeah. Okay. I actually, uh, Mike, I'm going to give you it as well because you did say it. And then when I asked you to repeat it, you forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Play back the tape. I want to hear that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you said likes me in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, but um, so t- uh, Tom and uh, Mike are going to get the points. KJ, I believe you only got two of those, correct? Yeah, two if you count that first one. Yep. We're, we'll count it and you're nice. still only at two. But <laughs> I, I, this is a, a, a pivotal moment in the movie. And I think this may actually directly relate to something that Tom was talking about in his initial thoughts that we may not share the same opinion on this. And I'm, I'm curious how everyone else says. I actually liked that they had these different elements that tugged at your heartstrings throughout it and really came to a nice conclusion. Um, I know, and I'd love to hear everyone else's thoughts on that too, but I actually like that. I like that it was a silly traveling companions you know, odd couple kind of situation, but there actually was some kind of underlying story there. It was more than just this guy, you know, is creating challenges and, and, and Steve Martin's having difficulties getting home. So I, I thought that nice touch at the end where they do bring that, you know, emotional element to the movie and actually bring John Candy to the family. What I do like about that too is they didn't all just sit down for dinner and all that. Like it was a quick, like we got here and then we wrapped it up. If it dragged on, I think I'd have a problem with that. But I thought it was interesting to hear Tom's initial thoughts on that. And I, I thought more people would take it the way I looked at it, which makes me realize maybe there's other thoughts on this. So let me stop saying the word thought. And one more time, hear your thoughts. I mean, I think as, as far as the, the, this, this sentimentality of the movie, it, it, like you said, it's, it's made to be a holiday movie. Uh, it's, it's, it, you're trying to hearken back to family and everything. But I thought more than any of the other scenes, to me, the one scene that, I, that, got, that always gets you is, is when he's just sitting in the car talking to the wife. Because you still at that point think she's just back home and he's talking about how 
you know, he screwed up and here he is again and he found somebody he likes and he's doing the exact same thing he always does, which is fumble, fumble away a good opportunity. So like that, that scene right there was always interesting to me because he's basically talking to his passed on wife. Whereas you actually think he's just, you know, hasn't gotten home yet. So he's got to talk to somebody and here, and this is the person. And then they immediately go into the next scene, you know, where he's drinking to the wives, like in the, when, once he invites him back into the hotel. Yeah, but I always treated that movie as the sentimental movie it is. So I, it was never like, oh, that's a comedy. Like, that, it, it's not a Steve Martin, like, it's not Three Amigos. It is definitely, like, the, the sentimental thing. So that's, you know, the John Hughes-ness of it kind of comes through in that. But, um, yeah, I always, I always enjoyed, the, like, some of those scenes there. Uh, and now that I'm married, like, I... It's the, those thought, you know, you tie, it ties in a little bit more than I did you know, when I was 12 and watching this movie, waiting for the slapstick side of things. So you think about that, what would it be eight years from now, you know, roaming the country, what would you be like? And I, I think they, John Candy does a good job of just showing how it's not all just, he looks like, you know, the happy on the outside, sad on the inside type of guy. And it, it comes across pretty good. Now, Mike, you also liked that scene where he said he liked himself and his wife also liked him, correct? That, that was yes. also... Uh, right. Yeah, he's... He, yes, I liked it so much I forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so much... My, my problem with, with Hughes uh, directing this film is not so much... My, my problem is with Hughes, not so much Candy, who I, I think is kind of lovingly sweet and open. And Candy doesn't play the role naive. Um, so that that's how he gets away with it, or that, that's why this role works. What happens for me with Hughes, and it's not just this movie, it's um, it's with Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it's with The, the Breakfast Club, it's with movies typically that he directs, um, as opposed to just writes, which is that he'll, he sort of segments these moments that almost seem labeled as the sentimental moment. And so it comes off instead of, organic out of out of the story or out of the circumstances um it, it seems to come out of this kind of seg th this need to add in this uh, you know this layer the sort of well this movie needs more emotion so we'll add in the emotional scene and you know especially in that hotel room scene where he it's very early in the movie where he goes um uh, steve martin's character insults Dell and he says, you know what? My wife likes me. My customers like me and I'd like me. And, you know, cause I'm the real article. Uh, Hughes elects to play this, this kind of soft music underneath the, underneath the scene as it's going on. And it's like really bizarre because we're at the, we're at the fairly much at, we're, we're pretty much at the beginning of the movie and they're having their first kind of blow up. And suddenly you have this kind of like, um, coming to heart staging of, of this scene. And, and Candy's character is almost in tears as he's saying it. And what it basically does is it doesn't bring Steve Martin's character any recognition of him being, um, of him needing to, to sort of tolerate this different type of person, which is the, which is the, the journey that Steve Martin's character goes on. In, instead, what it does is it just shuts him up so he goes back to bed. And so you have all of this investment in this kind of uh, in pulling on on your emotions, which pays off really not at all. Because the next time they're together in the diner, Steve Martin goes, "You know what? We're really not a great team. We should 
we should part ways. So I have absolutely no idea what to do with that speech. The way Hughes treats it, generate a, a larger response or recognition from Martin's character. You are right, Tom. They kind of do that back and forth a few too many times where they're kind of, well, I guess they're never really buddies, but they're, they're kind of getting along. Steve Martin gets angry, either insults or just makes John Candy feel bad. And then they end up back together again. And then they're, they're again, they're not best bros or whatever, but they're working together and then they get angry again. So I, I do agree that part of the movie doesn't work that well. And I wonder if that's why I always struggle to kind of remember the plot because it, it just, that arc happens too many times. When you say they get angry, it's usually initiated. I think it's always initiated by Neil and John Candy's character, Dell stands up for himself. He's not a pushover, even though he's a friendly guy, he, he, he still will say like, and like, you can't talk to me that way or do, or this is how I am and I should be treated. And then they move. Then usually Neil, Steve Martin realizes maybe he was a little too harsh and usually comes back. I think that's kind of more of that dynamic they go through, but you're right. They go through that loop quite a few times. Yeah. But you're also, I mean, you're dealing with a finite amount of time in in this in the in this movie. So you want to, you know, they got the, the, if you it, really a lot of those fights occur before there's a transition to the next vehicle. So like and so you, you get that you have the three forms of transportation at least you know, you count a bus and a you know truck as the same as two different as the same thing. But like you have your planes, trains, and automobiles, and as you're doing that, there's a there's an argument and a blow up. Yeah, there's an argument blow up and forgiveness leading up into the next transition to the next way to get a little bit closer to home. So kind of could be read as, you know, they have this explosion, or Neil does, as you said. <laughs> he has this explosion. Dell doesn't, you know, doesn't stand up for it. They get on with it and they move on a little bit closer until they finally get to the end and they can be done with you know, the explosions, at least as far as we can tell. You never know. Dell might be really annoying at dinner that night. The one thing I will say they do right in those sequences is they get to a point where neil is just about to warm up to him or just about to trust or just getting a little closer and then boom something happens so it's it's a dance yeah, yeah i mean that's not that's not really my problem that, that's how this this should work it's the um basically if i mean if you think of the, the movie i compare this to is it happened one night the famous romantic comedy from the 30s which is also a road movie and the plot of that movie is this rich girl is um uh you know trying to get away from her father to meet her husband that the father doesn't want to marry and she ends up with clark gable who's playing a, a newspaper reporter and they have to go on a trip together with very few resources across the country to, to meet this guy. And what ends up happening is Clark Gable hates, hates the rich. He thinks they're useless blue bloods. And what he has to learn as he falls in love with this woman through a collection of episodes is not to be so judgmental. And what she has to learn is how to survive, right? You, you don't have daddy's comforts anymore. This is how you need to become resourceful. Steve Martin in this movie is both of those characters. He's going through both both series of developments, right? He's learning how to be more resourceful and he's learning how to be tolerant. Um, the the damage that John Candy's character, Dell, has has experienced, the loss of his wife, um, that that damage, maybe the movie's about getting over that. 
Um, but I don't, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what that, what the fact that his wife is dead does for us in this movie. And so the, the kind of blow up and get back together, blow up and get back together, that works great. That's fine. My, my favorite one is the, uh, they have this like little vaudevillian thing after the car blows up and, and Steve Martin punches John Candy and then he trips over the, the, the trunk. It's, it's, it's a great little scene. But these kind, of, these, these kind of heartstring moments don't necessarily drive the plot or contribute to the blow up forgiveness quite, quite in the right way because I think they're the wrong tone. So Tom, I've never heard um, John Candy be compared to Clark Gable before. Uh, I was, I was, I was comparing uh, Steve Martin. Uh, oh, to Clark. Claudette, I was comparing him to Claudette Colbert. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I had read um, Paul Hirsch's autobiography. He's the editor for this movie and a few other pretty big movies. Um, and in that, it said the original cut was four and a half hours, which I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not too unusual for movies. But then he said uh, John Hughes got it down to three and a half and John Hughes was happy with it. So I think to get it down to the length it is now, they may have had to cut a lot more. So I wonder if that's another reason why um, John Candy's wife's death feels a little bit out of place because that might have been more either fleshed out or it might have made more sense in the longer cut. I don't know. Just guessing. I think, see, I think it might have because, I don't know, this is me. It's been 30 years of watching this movie and I would have been home and I had no idea that John Candy's wife's dead. Like, I was just, you know, whatever. He hasn't been home in years. His wife, you know, he said it's a figure of speech. He's got pictures of her. He's pretty happy with her. So it's just like he didn't, to me, like you said, like there's a lot of hints that somehow Steve Martin, Neil picks up on. And then, like, the, you know, when you first see it, I'm just like, oh, okay. That makes sense. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of clues. I guess there was. But then I thought back, I'm like, but there really wasn't that many clues. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you know, it sounds like he was just in a, like, a bad relationship that he was pretending was a good relationship. You can't tell. But somehow Neil turned to you know, learn to get off the train, get back on the train, go back in the opposite direction. Unfortunately, the guy was still sitting there. And they and then like so I guess that was just me never picking up on it as a kid when I was watching it, as far as like I would have never figured that one out. But like but I think if you have that longer cut, maybe you do have more of those clues come in, more things are said, allusions to it, like, you know past tense slips out or something like that. And, and Mike, you, you didn't need to know the clues along the way because they recapped them for you conveniently oh, right yeah. at the end. Yes. <laughs> and right. they actually like literally flash back to the scenes. It's yeah. not like even it was just very voiceover. Easy. Like it's like, these are the scenes. <laughs> right. And the thing, and the one movie thing, this is general movie thing that was annoying to me because it happens all the time is when they flash back to a character thinking about what they did and said, they can still see themselves from the original scene. <laughs> So like C. Martin is thinking of himself by looking at himself on the bed and then looking at Dell instead of just looking at Dell the whole time while he's saying these things. But that's a minor tidbit. No, I feel you on that one. <laughs> I, I think like that too, but I get it. They're just literally cutting that scene. Whereas if you're having a memory, it'd be through your eyeballs. <laughs> and the other thing I wanted to say too, it's Tom just mentioned uh, a, a much older movie that had kind of that travel theme. But what I wanted to also say was, this travel format is replicated quite often. In fact, just at a sheer coincidence, the day I rewatched Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, earlier in that day, we were having lunch and just throwing something on the TV, and we were flipping through Netflix, and there was a movie called 
due date from 2010 with Robert Downey Jr. and Zach Galifianakis. I just needed something mindless to throw on. Zach is crazy, and I kind of know what we're getting into. It's just some silly comedy. That's the same thing. Robert Downey Jr.'s character has to get back across the country because his wife has has a scheduled C-section. I wonder if the baby's going to come early. You know, like, it's the same kind of thing. However, I think planes, trains, and automobiles, if I'm just looking in that small vacuum of two movies, did it much better. But I just thought that was funny the same day I was going down this venture. I saw another movie that had the same kind of travel companions theme. <laughs> the, the, you go back to the 90s, it, it's, it's essentially Tommy Boy as well. Like, it's the stiff, rigid guy with the outlandish, overweight guy that doesn't quite get it, but still has that personality to get her to turn the chicken fryer back on after the, you know, after it's turned off. So like, it's, they literally that like Tommy boy is, is that movie, except they're not trying to travel home. They're just trying to make sales. So like, <laughs> but like you said, yeah, this traveling trope is, is it's, it's, there's a lot of places that it happens. But as soon as, whenever I watch this movie, I think of Tommy boy, it's one of those things because they are those characters, just the nineties version of the eighties characters. Or the skin of Tommy Boy Black Sheep, which is the same movie, just with a different premise. <laughs> yes, that was in the that was, yeah that was in the uh, David Spade yeah. uh, Chris Farley. Let's yeah. just make some uh, money for drinks. Yes, yes. Yeah, so I mean the road movies, right? With um with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby also have that same function, and they made a oh God, how many of those did they make? Right. There's a road to Bali, road to. <laughs> I don't remember the other ones now, but uh, yeah, the Road to Bali was, was the one I know. But it's the same concept, right? It's, it's the mismatched pair on an adventure somewhere. Right. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. Okay, guys. Well, uh, I hope this was a, a fun round one for you. It looks like right now that Tom is presently in the lead with three points. Mike is right behind him with two. And KJ is also with us. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Talking Pictures Trivia Theater presents a screaming lapel pin production. The Jane of My Youth. A coming-of-age story of young love. Read by me, Tom. Chapter 3. The Library Wall. Inside the box was something small and metal apparently fitting within the palm of his hand. It looked like a lapel pin, but with a figure carved into the top part of the pin. That's when in Jane walked. He looked up and then looked away. Something was wrong. She looked... off. Without noticing him, Jane charged to the back of the library. A moment passed, and then... Michael heard someone knocking... Placing the gift in his pocket, he sneaked forward, tiptoeing towards the back of the library. Peering between two books on the shelf, he saw Jane. She had removed several of the books on a back wall shelf and was knocking on what appeared to be a blank wood panel. She knocked twice more and then the wall slid aside, revealing an opening. Jane ducked down and vanished, as the wood panel behind her slid mysteriously back into place. The library went quiet. Michael's jaw dropped. What was that? 
He crept forward. The wall seemed solid. Pressing against it did nothing to move it. How many times did she knock? He knew he saw two knocks, but how many knocks did she make before? One or two? He thought a moment, and... Two knocks. He knocked. Again. He waited. The wood panel slid away, and the dark cement hallway revealed itself. Michael took a breath, ran back to his table to grab his bag, and stepped into the darkness. Behind him, the door shut. This has been a Talking Pictures Theater presentation of a Screaming Lapel Pin production. The Jane of My Youth, a coming-of-age story of young love, read by me, Tom. This week, Screaming Lapel Pins has on sale the rivalrous walking catfish. Pick one up wherever Screaming Lapel Pins are sold. And we're back for round two. There will be three more categories in round two. Each one will be worth two points. And there may even be a bonus question. We'll see. The categories are a buddy of mine. Oh my gosh, it's Ashkenagan. And why did you kiss my ear? Mike, I'm going to let you start us off again. I'm going to go with, oh my gosh, it's Ashkenagan, because I just loved that name. It's time for question four. Now, I know I have long-winded questions, so here we go. Who is the screw-up of this dynamic duo and why? This is a subjective question. Locked in. I can be locked in. Locked in. KJ. I'm going to do what Tom did. The last one who locks in goes first. I I don't think either of them are the screw up of this dynamic duo. I, I think they're in a rough spot. They're trying to get home. The weather's against them. It's a crowded planet we're on. It, it's rough. Um, and they're each trying to do it in their own way. Um, neither of them are particularly good at it, but neither of them are particularly bad at it. I don't think they were making terrible decisions. So I, I don't think either of them were the screw-up. I'm, I'm going to call an audible and say neither of them. Okay. Uh, Mike, where do you stand? Um, based on his answer, I could go with the exact opposite and say the combination of the two is a large screw-up of two human beings. Because you, you did have, you feel like there's times when, like even Steve Martin says it, I think we get further by ourselves and by happenstance they end up not doing that. But it is easier to get a single plane ticket, a single train ticket, and any of these things that they want to do. They don't necessarily need to know a guy if you can just, you know, get on board So and, and buy your ticket. So I would say I don't think it's either one of them either. I think it's both of them together form a large, klutzy person. Okay, Tom. I'm going to go with, with Dell. I, I don't think Neil... Well, while Neil is rough around the edges, the reason for the most part why he's delayed is not his fault. Um, he could be maybe a little more more easygoing about it, but it's not necessarily his fault. Now, it's often not Dell's fault 
However, it is more often Dell's fault than, than Neil's fault. Um, for example, the car. Uh, Dell um, throws a cigarette into the back seat, which sets it on fire. He goes the wrong way on the highway, which which kind of uh, blows the car up, um, which you know results in the car being destroyed. He's driving too fast on the highway, which forces them to sit in the back of a freezer truck. Uh, so I think that he is, though he also provides solutions, he very often provides problems. But does any of does any of that happen if they're not in the car together? Because Dell would not be driving the entire time at night on the road where those two trucks go by and he's throwing the cigarette out the window, unless he had a second person in the car to have gotten him to that point. I I mean possibly, but I, he's still. I mean, you could also say, well, if he's if he had to rent a car, he still would have had to rent a car. Yes. Right. So if he's renting a car, he's still going to be smoking he's i mean the the problems that are caused by his bad driving are caused by him alone you could say that in in a different world he he you know if the in an alternate universe he doesn't do this but mm, that's kind of a stretch yeah mm -hmm. and unfortunately he doesn't get the car without the steve martin without neil's credit card yeah so. <laughs> yeah which probably wouldn't have happened because the, the credit cards got got swapped um, yeah. Would yeah. you guys like to know who got the question right? No, we're, we're having fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot it was a question. <laughs> so I have to say, those were all great answers, and I actually didn't expect a, a few of them. So I, I had to think about this for a second. And I think the points, all two of them, are going to go to none other than Mike. I think both. Uh, I think there are elements at some points I actually was leaning towards the answer no one gave, which was Neil, but then there are other <laughs> cases where um, Dell is creating isolated challenges, just like Tom was saying before with the car. And there's other things where <laughs> Neil is creating challenges, like getting so frustrated about the car not being at the rental cars in the, in the right spot that he throws away his receipt, which is pretty stupid. And I think the lady says it perfectly, which I'll save for those who watch the movie. So I actually think Mike brought up a good point. Here. I think they are each other's uh, kryptonite in some ways. If there's like isolated, they seem to be going about life doing very well. Okay. Dell Griffith selling amazing amounts of shower rings and Neil taking over the marketing industry, then all of a sudden these two unlikely travelers cross paths and all the chaos ensues. So I think some of the points Tom said with Dell are spot on, but then I can also think of a lot of things where Neil was having that challenge, as I said, with the rental car, just to name one of a, a few of them. So I think, Mike, you, you might be onto something there. Uh, yeah, I mean... I what I'm always seeing with it, it's like, it's, it's the pair. It's, it's a pair of things are always happening where they're just, you know, Neil gets, without Dell in, in this scenario, Neil doesn't get as far, but I think he'd be a lot less frustrated if he just, you know, stayed the night in the airport, like he saw the guy laying on the floor doing. <laughs> but then there's that combination, like you said, and honestly, as you know, a 13 year old, 12 year old kid, when this movie came out, his rant at the, 
woman at the rental car counter was the greatest film rant I'd ever seen in my life. And it was, it was amazing. And I, I, something that I couldn't repeat in front of my parents at the time, still wouldn't do it now, but it's just one of the greatest things. The four ebbing wheels and a seat is just the best way to describe the, the need for a vehicle. And by the way, that, that um, agent, uh, I, I was like, she looks so familiar. Yes. She was the secretary in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Right. Yeah, and she was on a couple she, '80s sitcoms too. I think. Yes. Yeah. Very iconic look. Yeah, but yeah, but I think it's that, that's why I always thought it was like it's that combination is like he screws up just enough to get rescued, but then Dell does something stupid like you know blow up the the car that they managed to get with the credit card that got screwed up because they swapped their credit cards, and so that that's kind of what I was thinking, and I, I really wasn't thinking anything too deep and of uh besides what when kj said neither of them i thought well it's got to be at least one of them and then i'm like well actually i would say it's both of them so <laughs> I, I i don't know i would say that um neil being frustrated at the car people is entirely justified they left him in a parking lot three miles from their place without a car that he just purchased <laughs> right yes. I, I, I don't know i i would be ready to curse at them too yes. the yeah. challenge there tom is he made it worse by letting his anger get the best of him and throwing right. away the only identification that he actually yeah. purchased so that's why i couldn't you know yeah i i, I yeah. yeah i mean i was like i i know we're supposed to be kind of on her side because she has like the last laugh in that scene but i i just wanted to strangle oh. her I thought, I thought she was entirely in the wrong you definitely want to strangle her from the moment you meet her when she's on the phone and then you can see that he's the next in line, but there's like eight people behind him and she's, you know, doing mm -hmm. gobble gobble noises with her, whatever it is. Like, yeah. you do want to be annoyed gobble, by gobble. her. <laughs> yeah. Like, you want to be annoyed by this lady. And then he just goes off on her and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he's like, I threw it away. And I'm like, oh, you know, like there's that huge letdown at that point. But Like he had all the cars. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, John Candy used Steve Martin's credit card to get the car, right? That was a pop. What credit card did Steve Martin have at this point to get the car? He they actually had a whole scene that went over what plastic. He has they at were least, carrying. yeah, he has at least three okay. cards. Got it. Yeah, I think it was Diners mm -hmm. Club. I believe the that Diners was the Club card. is yeah. the one that Dell had, and then I think he said I had a no. Visa card and a Neiman Marcus card. Dell had a card for I'm like sorry. a big and tall chain. The one that Dell took. <laughs> for like seven locations in like. Pacific Northwest. Like, but, yeah, but the, 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 Northwest. isn't the joke they have the same card? It, no, no. They, 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 they swapped when they went to they, the They swapped cards, but they have the same cards. type look, of cards. They no, I think they just the look same, similar. But they were different types oh, of cards. Oh, they're not the same? Because yeah. oh, okay. even Dell, even I remember him saying, he's. I, I watched it yesterday and I, it just stuck in my head because this is one of those things that is a dated por portion of the movie is the is the yeah. credit card swipe machine thing that he like mm. that he was using in the hotel it made me laugh and that's what made me notice the cards but he was asking him like oh what do you do for these discount credit cards or something like that so he had some sort of budget credit card but uh it looked like the good one <laughs> and yeah. that's the crazy thing you're exactly right in the t uh, if you transport back to those times back then you needed to get a lot of cash you had to get it because you won. The banks weren't all open on the weekends. It wasn't like the ATMs as easy as it is now. And credit cards weren't as big as they are now. Now it's almost like, what do you mean you don't have a credit card? You want, you know, how, how are we going to do this mm -hmm. transaction? So that is, it's dated, but it's interesting to see it through that almost like time capsule. Yeah. I mean, you thought when, when they got robbed, they lost $900 in cash or something between the two <laughs> of them. Like I've never, I've never traveled 
with $900 or $700 <laughs> in, in like in all the years I've been a grown adult. Like that was just, even though I was like, oh, it's mm -hmm. too much money to have. But then yeah. I remember, yeah, you had to go, you needed to go to the ATM like every weekend to get your money out. And then that, because no one yeah. took the card. Mm. It just, or yep. it was just so much more difficult. <laughs> yeah. Talking credit cards, like I was over by the crate and barrel by you um, probably two years ago now. And I had all my Tupperwares or whatever. I was getting all excited, had them all piled up on the thing. And I forget if the power went out or they lost internet or something. And all I had was a credit card. And, and the lady's like, no problem. And she grabbed one of those machines and put it on the desk. You know, the big yeah, yeah. Half the staff came over and was just so like, oh, I've never seen. Let's see if it actually. <laughs> so here I am thinking. Wait, wait until they take your copy off. <laughs> well, no, right? Know? So I'm like, all right, I'm willing to try this. I don't know what's going to happen. I've never done this. So I got all my crates or, you know, Tupperware lined up. I hand them the card. And luckily it still had the imprint on it, right? The new ones don't always have. No, mine imprint. don't. Right? It's all, mm. So she puts it in clunk clunk and then she let me leave with the with the, the i'm like what are you paying for it? Yeah, well, what when in like a week or like what is she gonna do with this piece they, of paper? they then file that with whatever banking whatever bank they bring it to and then that's how they charge card charge the credit card company it sounded like kj thought his card was gonna internally combust <laughs> when it went to that machine i'm just picturing like what they're calling up visa and visa's gonna be like no we're not accepting this we haven't accepted that since 1993 they're right? gonna like, use their modem to dial up to... yeah because we're such 21st century people. We can't even imagine an alternative credit card machine. Never mean, never mind a time before credit cards. Well, this this is an awkward credit card machine. My God, thank. I'm, I'm glad I'm of age in this century. Do we start exploring cryptocurrencies? Well, it's, it's, I mean, I was I was telling I was talking with KJ about this before we got on here. Is like I showed this to my 13 year olds who were born in 2006. And I had to explain ahead of time, yes, I understand this whole movie is solved if he's got a cell phone, but he doesn't. So like, <laughs> that's out. And yes, I understand, you know, the credit card machines and all that stuff. Like the internet would be great. No, but you know what you did? You stood in line for the payphone. You did. And you would hope that the person on the other end would answer the collect call that you made. And and that way, you know, you could get a home, you get a call to home. But that's and then yes, the way he picks up the one payphone with two fingers. I was like, I've talked on the phone with just hooking it to my pinky and not putting anything near my face. I was like, that was a thing. I was like, these things happened. So once you get past that, I was like, watch the rest of the movie. <laughs> oh, that's great. You know what else is funny? So we, we I, I feel like that comes up pretty often these days. Like, oh, you know, if they just had a cell phone, it would have solved it. And it's probably true for most of the movies. But on Talking Pictures Trivia, we've been watching a lot of older movies. I wonder how long did they say, you know, if they just had a landline, this whole movie would have been solved. <laughs> I don't know. Right. What was the technology? What was the comparison in the six in the seventies? <laughs> if only they had a raven, you know. <laughs> Oedipus would have been solved if there was postal service. I mean, that would have been. <laughs> we have two remaining categories, and they are a buddy of mine and why did you kiss my ear, Tom? Which one would you like? Why did you kiss my ear? It's time for question five. When O'Hare Airport in Chicago grounds all flights due to inclement weather, Neil and Dell are fortunate to get a motel room while stranded in Wichita due to Dell's connections. It turns out that the last room only has a single bed, but being the troopers that they are, they, the two decide to share. Unexpected by either, the two wake up in a spooning situation. 
What is Dell's response to Neil's inquiry regarding the location of his other hand? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. Mike, you seem uh, like you know this one. Uh, between two pillows, but they aren't pillows. <laughs> between two pillows. Between two pillows. <laughs> okay, everyone's getting the points here. I had to bring this one up because I just thought this landed. And, and the reason I wanted to bring this one up is we've been talking about the journey, the characters. I wanted to just highlight the actual comedy in this film. Any other one? This is one that jumped out to me. And it's the whole setup, you know, it's this. And he's, he's like, why, why, why are you kissing my ear? Why are you holding my hand? Where's the other? I mean, it was just, and even to the point where they get up and he, they start saying something about the sports teams. I mean, it's just about like, the Bears game. <laughs> yeah, like it's just like cliche. Yes. In some regard, but I thought it landed. Um, what do we think about the, the comedic elements of this film and anything that comes to mind specifically? Well, even talking about this scene specifically, the, the sort of, um, the, you know, Dell is a person who needs affection and, and is capable of tremendous affection, which, you know, in this scene, we can kind of see it pass over from just sort of homosocial into, a, you know, slightly homoerotic. Um, but he, I mean, he's just so big with affection for the people around him and the, the world that, that he's in. Um, and he doesn't really have that kind of personal affection at a home. He doesn't have a home, right? He, you know, he's, he's the kind of the, the, the wandering balloon uh, wherever he goes that, you know, the, the kind of the tremendous amount of affection he's capable of kind of manifests even in his subconscious in this need to be close to someone and his need to kind of, rest or hold someone like he can't get close enough to people even though he's always always um on the border between uh there's always a border or a block between him and someone else because that's who you are when you don't have a home but you talk about the 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 comedy the comedic parts of this movie one of the things that i love with john candy is the and it's a subtle thing is the quick little answers he does so when the police officer, Michael McKeon, says to him, like, do you think this is good to be on the road? He's like, yes, I yes, I do. Yes, I do. Like that, that answer, or like, he's like, yes, I'm fine. Yes, I'm fine. Like those, because it's just dry, and it makes me laugh every single time when he's like, this should be on the road. Yes, it, yes, I, yes, I do. Yes, I do. He's like, I don't know how I'm going fast. I'm going because the speedometer helped it, but the radio works. So, you know, like. What are you saying? But like that, like his, his, like there's, there's not just, there is the, the scenes where like they're falling over the trunk and all that stuff. What you said, like that, that vaudeville, you know, joking around that way. But then there's those subtle little, the little bits. And like the other one is one, one of them turns around, sees the car on fire. The other one turns around, sees the car on fire. And then they both have to do the turnaround to see that the car is definitely on fire. Like <laughs> there was a couple like subtle things that aren't just those jump out at you jokes that I always like. But yeah, John Candy, he's done that in a bunch of different movies. I think it's in like Summer Rental and other things that he's been in. He's, he just does that. Yes, yes, I do. Yes. Another one I really liked is um, Neil, I think, says, what do you figure the temperature is? One. <laughs> like that was another just quick. They don't dwell on it. I've, yeah, in texts with KJ, I've said there. This is one of those movies I quote a lot with random things, and the one degree is one of those things. 
and like when and when Dell's like, I think we were robbed. He goes, Do you think so? Like that's <laughs> I heard that so many times from my siblings when I would say something stupid as a kid because it was just the perfect line said in a perfect way. Like just in that scenario of somebody said something so obvious that you had to say something, but it had to be something ridiculously sarcastic. It's it's how they have different comic styles, Steve yes. Martin and John Candy. Like Steve Martin is, I think, uh, you know, even though we think of John Candy as John Candy's comedy is somewhat coming from his size and his, you know, his kind of physical presence is uh, kind of overwhelming. He's he's not very much a physical comedian in this. A lot of it's like you're saying is coming from that delivery, and and for me, his, his sincerity. You know, everything he does, he does with complete sincerity. Uh, Steve Martin is more, maybe more of a physical comedian than other things, but he is in this as well. I mean, you know, you see him when he's running anywhere, right? Running after the cab. It's not a natural stride. Very exaggerated. Chest, yeah, he's got his chest puffed up yeah. and he's he's kind of um, <laughs> dotting back and forth a little Those are bit. The strongest handles on, front, on, on bags I've ever seen because yeah. he's waving yeah. them all over the place. I know we're, yeah. we're an audio... Uh, uh, podcast here, but I was waving my arms to the side <laughs> like I was carrying the suitcases. Yeah, and he's the one who takes the spills. He's always falling over, you know, um, um, that type of thing. And it's not, there's not a, a tremendous amount of physical comedy in this. I think the the scene that comes to mind most, the, the kind of double take sort of uh, um, Three Stooges type thing is, is when the car goes up and they have to yeah. do, you know, a double take with it um, and just start laughing. But their their comic styles are fairly different and are I think complementary for that reason. Yeah, I mean, and that that a lot of that comes from <clears throat> back then. Like Steve Martin was a stand up comedian, you know, and so like that's what you knew him for. Like that's that, that I remember watching his stand up routines on whatever was on, and then he was on SNL all the time, and he always had some sort of funny bit, but he always had that that he's still doing it. That deadpan, dry humor where he's saying a joke that he doesn't tell you it was a joke. And so it makes you laugh anyway. John, and then John Candy, I always, I always saw him as in movies. So like to me, when I was like younger, like I remember Steve Martin was in movies, but he was a comedian and then John Candy was like a comedy actor. But I think like you said, I think they play well as a duo in this movie because of those two different styles. Like, yeah, there is that dry humor and the physical side of things. But yeah, John Candy's almost like a straight man a lot of times for the ridiculous situations that are the ridiculous reactions that steve martin has <laughs> yeah I, I mean steve martin's still like the, the straight man is uh, in this i think it's what's interesting is that the the straight man is sort of um the one who has to kind of deal with the physical obstacles that he's he's the one who's sort of um uh, uh you know tripping over things or, or falling over uh you know, but we get, I mean, we get a little bit of this, the kind of the, that silliness with John Candy trying in bed, trying to get comfortable, trying to clear his throat, that type of thing. But, and I think Chris Farley had this as well. That is, is just this, you know, it's the warm blanket presence, right? It's the kind of in, enjoyable to spend time with this person that makes, you know, that, that comes out, the, the comedy comes out of that. Or, or, you know, and because it's not just about one-liners or laughing, but it's about wanting to spend time with with people you're rooting for what's interesting too is steve martin is still doing this i mean he's on a um i mean i'm sure it stopped because of covid but he currently has a traveling uh show with martin short and they can go around and he actually produces music he's big on the banjo like he's still a working actor comedian like he's he's not 
looking back in the 80s and that was the end of his career. It's, it's quite fascinating to see how he has had that longevity. Yeah, well, it's funny because like one of the f- things that my kids were watching the Muppet movie and they're like, that's the guy from Planes, Trains and Automobiles. I'm like, yes, it is. He's the rude waiter. So he's been doing this forever. And like, I still follow, like, yes, see him on Twitter or whatever. And he has ridiculous, he's just, he's just a comedy mind. You know, he's got that Monty Python type of, everything is sarcastic and, and dark and, and has humor to it. If you, you know, makes you laugh at everything that's going on, even though like he's a picture of him where he doesn't, people don't recognize him because he's wearing a mask. So he puts a sign behind himself now. It's a Steve Martin with an arrow pointing down. Like he posted that uh, on, on, on Twitter. So like those kinds of silly things that, it's it's just like he never stops, and it's a it's a great thing, and it's a bummer that you know you lost John Candy as early as you did, you know because you don't know you know what you what you could get, you know do they team up again? Do they have other movies? Because I mean the same with the Farley and David Spade, like you basically probably could have had a couple more John Candy, Steve Martin type of these things that might get more ridiculous, might get more sentimental, but they were just you know you don't get to the point of like the Cable Guy where it's like. John Candy, some sort of creepy dude, but you get like you get you might get you might have had a lot more opportunity because Steve Martin was always on and he still is. So I think it's that's why I've always been a fan. Yeah, Steve Martin's career has had uh, he's he's been able to adjust or adapt or take new things in. I mean, he stopped comedy pretty much dead because he he had gone he had gone at it for so many years and so hard that he, you know kind of burned out on it and was able to transition into film. Uh, you know very well then he transitioned into the banjo or he was doing that already but kind of took it up and i think he's now what tony tony award winning or tony nominated banjo player yeah um he's written a number of novels so yeah he's a he he has a somewhat of a, a polymath aspect to him um i don't know much about candy's other work outside of outside of film i don't know if if that was if he was a writer at all. I really don't know much about him, actually. Sounds like that might be an interesting B side. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Part twenty-seven. <laughs> okay. Um we have one question left. The category is a buddy of mine. It's time for question six. Throughout this movie, the traveling companions use a variety of transportation methods. Among planes, trains, and automobiles, which do you think was the most challenging part of their journey and why? This is subjective. Locked in. I'm going to lock in. I don't like my answer, but, you know. (laughs) I will be in agreement with Tom on that one. I lock in. Mike, you were last, so you will be first. I would say... Just knowing me and the way I would be in this scenario, probably for me, the most difficult trip is sitting in the freezer truck at the end because you are literally, you know you're going home. So there's no thought of what's the next thing we have to do after this? Where do we got to go from here? It's basically just now you're in, a, in almost in relax mode, but now you're in a freezer truck. So it's, it's, it's a huge letdown. Like, I mean, I, you were in a frozen bed of, bed of a pickup earlier. But at this point, you're on the home stretch and it still sucks. Like everything about it still sucks. Like, you know, you can't ride in the cab because the dude's weird. And <laughs> like, you know, but you, so you, and then he says, how long? It's like three hours, maybe four, no more than four and a half. Like you're going, it's worse and worse and worse. It made me look up the distance between St. Louis and Chicago on, G, on Google Maps just to be curious. 
but uh, to see how far away they actually were. But that's a long time in a freezer truck when you know like the destination at the end is the end. And Do you I remember think, how, how long it was? I think, well, oh, no, I'll do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> but they, uh, yeah, it's just like that alone would make me the most annoyed is the fact that I know that I'm home. I'm literally, you know, I'm in Illinois now. Like St. Louis is literally on the border with Illinois, but you're in Illinois for almost the entire drive, but you're not in Chicago. So like that to me would be the most difficult part of the journey was just being done. Yeah, that looks like it would be about four hours and 40 minutes in a freezer truck. So I was debating between the back of the freezer truck and then the other one you mentioned, Tom, the back of Gus's truck. Um, because I was, I was trying to think most challenging and I, maybe this was or what, but that those were there when their life was threatened the most, right? How long can you sit in the back of a freezer truck, especially if you didn't have gloves? Like, but I, I thought the back of the truck might have been more dangerous because of the wind. You literally might have lost an ear to frostbite on that on that ride. I don't know how long that ride was. I don't quite remember. 40 miles. How long? 40 miles, he said. 40. So, it, yeah, 40. Yeah. And I, they weren't dressed for it, so to say. Um, not to mention that dog didn't look like <laughs> yeah. Well, don't worry. Eventually he froze too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Well, no, the dog had it right being down on the hay like that. Oh. Well, anyway. Um, yeah. So I'd say the back of that truck was, it wasn't on screen. It wasn't the most challenging, but in, in, in real life, I think that would have been the most challenging. I'm going to go with the car that explodes. And my reason for this is for, besides the fact that, you know, you are, I think a hundred, 110 miles out or 105 miles out from Chicago there. So you're, you're close, but also the, first of all, you almost die going the wrong way on the road. Then your, your car explodes. So you have to sit in something that's burning hot. Um, then when you have to go in the car again, it's freezing cold. So you get both of those problems. Then we're not also, the, the film is also not dealing with all the problems that the car affords because now the car is towed somewhere in Illinois and you have to get it out of, out of storage. You have to deal with the costs. Hopefully he got insurance on it. Um, and, and then you have to deal with all of those problems. So the, the difficulty and the stress of, the the car is going to last far after thanksgiving um and so the film the film though it doesn't reveal that uh there's you know there's cost on the back end so to speak well everyone is going to get at least one point because of planes trains and automobiles i would agree that the automobiles parts <laughs> were the most challenging and I actually think when it comes to it's it's tricky because it, it's kind of a bit of a a coin flip between all of them because these were all talking about possibly freezing to death among other safety hazards. I'm gonna you know what everyone's getting two points on this one because the symptoms are actually quite similar of unsafe and cold driving environments uh, kind of across the board here. So we're gonna go two points across the board. Now, if you remember, I mentioned that there might be a bonus question at the end of this. Uh, but first, before we go into that, are there any other traveling moments of note that came up during this movie? There's the bus, which I think is important. 
right? When he goes on the bus into St. Louis, um, you you get a you get a great uh, not great, but you get you get an apt comparison between the two people. Um, Steve Martin tries to sing this song from I think the the 30s about throwing a coin in the fountain, and um, no one knows it. And Hughes highlights this with the where everybody ducks in and stares at him at the same time and then ducks out at the same time. It's sort of a, a theatrical moment that he, he litters into all of his movies, which you know are some of the best moments in his movies. And then John Candy sings, you know, uh, uh, the Flintstones theme <laughs> song. Uh, and, and you really get the, the kind of the blue blood isolation. Um, th there's another scene in, uh, um, it happened one night, which is the same thing. It's the, the rich girl and the poor guy get on a bus. And um, they're like, she's kind of awkward on the bus because she doesn't like who she's sitting next to. Uh, and he kind of reserves a seat for her and she doesn't like him, but she, uh, you know, they, they eventually uh, have sympathy for one another. And they do, a, there's a song and she kind of joins in the group when everybody starts singing um, The Man on the Flying Trapeze. And that little scene on the bus, it's a small scene, but it reminded me of that. And it connected to this other road movie in which a, a blue blood gets incorporated into, you know, the, the society of the everyman. Yeah, I would agree with what Tom said with the car. The car is, 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 is a great part of the movie from the, when he's singing the mess around and he's playing the piano on the thing on the dashboard. And, and when, they, when they finally stop the physical comedy of, you know, Steve Martin's fingers are stuck to the dashboard and the steering wheel's bent in half. Like, you know, like just from, from, from having stopped the car after going through the two trucks. And then they were, for splits, for, for one frame, they were both skeletons. And then for the next frame, the couple frames, John Candy was, a, was the devil. Like that whole little bit was, was as far as the, the funniest parts of the travel, I think that that's probably in my favorite of this movie is, is, is in that car and then followed closely by Gus's son, who's just amazing. What's interesting about that scene is that's the only one where they really take, a, I don't want to say otherworldly view, but the, it's, it's out of the, the physics of society. It's, it's, it's separate. Everything else is our universe. Right, it's total but, cartoony. Yes, but it's, it's just exactly. You've somehow yeah. transported into a cartoon. That's the perfect way to put it. And then you leave that moment, and you're back into reality. It's, it's, it's a funny little sequence. I like it. I think it's well done, but it's, it's just interesting, especially when you were saying how he, his fingers are melted <laughs> right. into the dashboard. He has to pull them out. Yeah, which is some of the best stuff in this movie. Is that kind of, I would think it's theatrical. And, and Hughes does it all the time. You know, think of Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller starts with Ferris Bueller breaking the fourth wall. Right, he turns and looks at us, and that's a, that's a theatrical thing. That's a, you know that's what you do in, in that's what you do to draw attention to the production you're in, yeah. right? Um, and and th so they're doing that there with the uh, with the skeleton, and they're not. And I don't think Hughes is doing it for any you know complex reason other than it's fun to violate that space. Um, you know, it's fun to violate the reality of this because it's funnier to do it than not to do it. And you know, I kind of like that, and it gives the movie. I think the type of wackiness that uh that i appreciate um and that's why i find the kind of the, the sentimental stuff so kind of cloying because it's so divorced from the kind of gleeful wackiness that he's capable of i'll tell you where the points are right now but we do have a bonus question 
that may actually shift the tides here. But right now, Mike, you are sitting at eight points in the lead. Oh, Tom's man. is right there with seven, and KJ has a strong four points. Yeah, the gimme points, the ones that everybody got. Well, you had to get it right. You could have got it wrong. Yeah, it's still okay. (laughs) So the final question, and the amount of points that will be awarded for this are the same as the answer. The category is, I didn't take your money, and I don't care for the accusation. It's time for a bonus question. How much money was supposed to be in Dell's wallet when Neil accuses him of stealing? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in? KJ, how much money? So Neil's wallet, I thought, was like 700 bucks. And so I got that number seven stuck in my head. So I'm going to say $77 for Dell, but I know it was a lot less. Okay. Mike, how much? I'm going to go with $263. Tom, how much? Two, five, eight. Okay. We have a record-breaking episode where Mike will end the episode with 271 points. The answer was exactly $263. If there's a dollar more, you can call me a thief. Tom, a valid seven points and KJ with four. Uh, so Mike, congratulations with the highest point total wow. of all times mm. on Talking Pictures Trivia of 271. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that up on my wall. Now that's 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 mm-hmm. noteworthy. To be fair, you had already won the episode prior to the first <laughs> at eight points. But I'm not entirely sure why I remembered exactly $263, <laughs> but that's just one of those numbers that stuck out in my head when I watched the movie. So That's exactly, and it stuck out for me too. That's why I threw it in there. So uh, again, congratulations, Mike. Oh, thank you. Guys, a valid effort on everyone there. I'm sure there may be a few little tidbits we might want to chat before the end of this. So we'll be right back with Movie Rant after this quick commercial break. It's time for Guess That Song, Whistling Edition. I'll whistle a song, and you guess what it is. Here we go.
If you guessed The Wind Beneath My Wings by Bette Midler, you're right. And we're back. It's time for Movie Rent. I'm kind of interested in what is Dell's journey, right? So you have a rogue movie, and the rogue, the idea of the rogue movie is the journey kind of um, mirrors the, the journey the characters are making from being one type of person to being another type of person. I think that's really clear with, with Neil. Uh, what is Dell's journey, do you guys think? I think that's a great question. What are his goals, right? He's got no time limit. He has no <laughs> destination that we know of. He's, is his only goal to help out Neil? We don't even know where he's, why he's going to Chicago. I, you're right. There's no, he doesn't say there's a big conference or a big sales thing. It's, he doesn't necessarily say he's going to Chicago other than he was on that flight, but like there was no necessary reason to be there because at the end of the movie, he's just sitting in a train station in chicago like so yeah like his it's almost like the the point of the movie is he's like he's spent he's, so he's spending all of these trips trying to find a friend and uh, he thinks he might have actually done that maybe i don't know that that would be one of the options <laughs> yeah i know I, I i am leaning in that direction mike i also think he is the epitome of an old generation of traveling salesmen and he knew nothing else but to be on the move and I guess a lot of people probably wouldn't be taking appointments on Thanksgiving Day. So maybe he did actually have a reason to be in Chicago, but not as drastic or as uh, urgent as Neil's, Neil Page. It, it might be that, like talking about this just now, it might be that what he needs to do, what, what allows him to develop is to be still to be able to go to Thanksgiving dinner with a family and not be on the move. Then in fact, the, you know, for, for uh, Neil, it's learning to kind of accept someone different from himself and also learn how to be, how to get through this, this problem, right? Learn how to be kind of sufficient um, by relying on someone else, right? That's really what self-sufficiency is. It's, it's relying on someone else because you can contribute to that alliance. Um, but for, for John Candy's character, for Dell, um, it, it might just be this person needs to be able to admit he doesn't have a home and sit down in one. And I think that that, that ending possibly affords him that. I don't know. Home is what, where you make it, right? It's what he toasts to, right? It's, it's, it's all worth it because, you know, we have a good woman to go back to. Um, and he doesn't really get that at the end. He's, he's not given that. But he is given a home, to at least to borrow, for the time being. Yeah, I never thought about that way, Tom. But I like that. I like that he, he got to experience um, you know, family at least one more time in a, in a small bite. Because he hadn't in eight years. Right. Remember that quote you told for. me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have a home. I don't have a home. I haven't been there eight years. <laughs> I, I, I find it when he says that, I just think about like what it's like, you know, traveling for work is one thing, like, and you go and to a hotel, but to think of the idea that there's just not that place for that guy, like there's nowhere to end this one long business trip. Like you're constantly going and going and going to the point where you finally, like, maybe you are desperate to find some sort of camaraderie. You find this guy, and you're doing everything you can to not blow it, and you continue to blow it, <laughs> but it just continues to work out for you. Just like you said, I think I think you're right. You're looking for that that stationary location, like 
at the end of this, he needs a single place to hang the hat at the end of the day. So we don't do a lot of visual gags here on Talking Pictures Trivia, but I just noticed Mike changed his name in this Zoom meeting to Mike the Winner, which is <laughs> <knows> aptly, that. <laughs> yes, aptly named with all the points. So <laughs> so if, if he ever decides to join us again, I wonder if he will come in as Mike the Winner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be a defending champion at that point. So. Yeah, I think yeah, I was going to say defending champ would be more appropriate. It's funny, we get a lot of those. <laughs> I, I have a random bit of trivia here that I, I thought was interesting. So we were talking about that scene, uh, famous scene with the marathon car rental where Steve Martin drops some F-bombs. And he uses the F word 18 times. So the film would have easily been rated PG or PG-13 uh, if it wasn't for that one scene. So that one scene uh, affected the rating of this movie. You could also see that as John Hughes declaring his adulthood, right? <laughs> he's breaking away from the Brad Pack, Brad Pack movie and he's, you know... I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an adult. I, I curse when I want to. <laughs> So I was also reading that uh, John Hughes, uh, he had a uh, interview on a DVD set called, called Those Aren't Pillows. <laughs> he was saying that he was inspired from, uh, for this movie by an actual flight he had from New York to Chicago, which was diverted to Wichita, Kansas, and it took him five days to get home. So it was loosely based on a true story. <laughs> Yeah, this is, and apparently he wrote the first 60 pages in six hours or something wow. of the script. He, he's apparently a manic writer. Um, and he started off, I, I think he's a National Lampoon guy. I think I have that correct. I think he was an advertisement, um, much like Neil. And then he, you know, National Lampoon was in, um, back when people cared about that, was, was in New York. Uh, I think PJ O'Rourke was the editor at the time. And he would kind of turn in material to National Lampoon. Um, and so this is kind of based on his work in the ad world, uh, you know, when his, when his flight was diverted. Um, but it's also the, the period in his life when his, his writing career started. So this is, yeah, this is um, probably a fairly nostalgic, nostalgic, nostalgia is the wrong word. It's not nostalgic. It's, <laughs> a, it's you know, the, the point where he, where his ad life ends and kind of his writing life begins. But I, I think the guy wrote ferociously even after he left the film industry to run a farm north of Chicago. Um, <laughs> the other thing we, we talked about a little bit is that trunk that they carry around. That trunk felt like a third character. Could fit one in it. Yeah, you could. And it, it was kind of always there. It was always present. They had to drag it around. Um, they used it a lot for a lot of the slapstick comedy um, I really liked that trunk that they yeah. always had to be dragging around. Well, it's ridiculous. Like he couldn't, even if it was just him, like lugging that thing around. It doesn't have wheels. You know, it's it's very cumbersome. When he's dragging it through the like the dirt field after the train, I'm I, my thought was, did he just drag it around New York City? Yeah. Like that thing is really good shape for being dragged everywhere. But I I wonder at the same time, he's dragging it because he knows Neil sees him. And he's just playing up, the, you know, the same as it's, oh, my back when he's going to pick it up off the middle of the road, you know, like he just, it's a little, it's like always about getting that trunk. And, and then they sit on that trunk when the car catches fire. So, yeah, it's definitely and, like an integral part of the movie. 
and it's a stand-in for candy too. It's big, it's, it's, it's loud, it's idiosyncratic. You can't miss that trunk, even if you trip over it on a random street corner, you will always know it. Um, and it, yeah, and it, 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 it takes up space. Right. And that's, you know, that's what candy does for, for Neil. It's, it's an impediment, but for us as watchers, it's a joy to watch him take up space. Plus it's got his, it, it has his hypoallergenic pillow in it too. So. Which is very important. Yeah. <laughs> He's allergic to sponge. Yes. <laughs> well, we covered a lot here and there was one additional thought I had that I, I just, for some reason felt I needed to bring up in movie rant when they're in the airport when they first realize they've they've crossed paths before because of the taxi cab incident neil looks over at john candy's character dell and he's reading a book and it's just the oddest thing it caught my eye it looks like a romance novel and it's called the canadian mountain yes i saw that too i even wrote that down i wrote that down also <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> it just it's one it's it's out of place for many reasons but just his general character like he does not look like a guy who would be reading a romance novel i did read that it was a, a little bit of a joke because he was um a can that the only thing i really know about john kenny is he's actually a canadian and he was a canadian playing an american but i just that always jumped out at me it's just like and they pay no there's no attention to it there's no other things about it he's just yeah, it's, it's the total throwaway yeah it's but a total it's throwaway yeah. and you could miss it if you're not looking for it but i saw it and it sounds like you guys did too <laughs> yeah. so i think i'll uh end it on that note um and, and again uh i i hope you guys had fun with this movie i think it was a perfect one for for the thanksgiving holiday and uh i'm glad i rewatched it in its entirety because i know i've seen it bits and pieces over the year once again i'd like to congratulate Mike, the winner for winning this week. Oh, thank uh, th you. Of course, Mike. And thanks again for joining us today. It was really good to have you on the show. Yeah, it was fun. Awesome. Uh, I'd also like to thank our wandering editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. I'd also like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss KJ's recommendation from 2016, Infinity Chamber. Can't wait to discuss that one. See you then. Ding, 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 ding. I'm one of these friends of today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom, you're on mute. Good time. Still can't hear you. Oh, no. <laughs> is. Is. Tom. Is, he, he, had, <laughs> he sounded so good. Yeah. No, it's because it's usually uh, Tom seduces the microphone. <laughs> it just With his sultry tones. You want to check in the system preferences and just make sure it's still pointing to that mic? Like if you hit the apple in the upper left-hand corner. Wait. Oh, how about Tom? now, Tom? How about now? Yes, but uh, it's... Yeah, but it doesn't sound like that mic. No. Hmm. So if you hit the... Either in Zoom or if you hit the Apple in the upper left-hand corner... Or just undo whatever you just did that five minutes ago was working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about now?
maybe well, but try it, to talk it, normal it sounds um <laughs> you want me to just unplug this mic um you want to no, share we... your screen let me i might have to close all those other windows stuff <laughs> yeah if i share here i just did it okay wait a minute there's a deal at macy's yeah. so, you, so try hitting that apple okay system preferences yep hit that okay so along the bottom yeah is it in there <laughs> try hitting the apple and hit the, and then hit force quit what am i force quitting uh hopefully nothing but let's just see if system preferences is there okay force quit that and say force quit. Usually that just says quit, not force quit, unless it's frozen. All right, now try hitting oh, Apple okay. System Preferences. Maybe it was frozen. <laughs> oh, wait, it's bouncing. No. It's bouncing. We can see it. Where did it bounce to? Um, it's, it's, if you, you look along so the bottom, if you look along the bottom, it's one, two, three, four, oh, five. Why did six, it do that? Seven, yeah. eight, nine. Okay, so now ten. what do I have okay. to click? There you go. <laughs> now see the grid next to the left of security and privacy? <laughs> Mm -hmm. There you go. 